And then when that hope was gone, um, there was no reason to stay alive. Welcome to The Depression Files, where we talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. We educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello, welcome. I want to say welcome to Paul Currington. Thank you so much for joining us here on the uh, Depression Files. Hey, well, thanks for having me, Al. I appreciate you asking. I would love to start if you could just share something uh, with the listeners about yourself. Oh, man, this is... Uh, I never know what to say when, when people ask me this. And, it's a uh, wide-open question for you. Uh, who am I? Who am I? <laughs> uh, I? Actually, I pay someone a lot of money twice a month to help me figure out this question. But uh, <laughs> I, uh, you know how I, I mostly identify is uh, I'm a storyteller. Uh, I tell true stories on stage, uh, most of them uh, uncomfortable, I'm all about me, you know. Yeah, kind of like uh, if anyone has ever heard the Moth podcast, uh, I run a storytelling show in Seattle, and I tell my own stories. And uh, I did stand-up for a long time. I did stand-up for 13 years. But then I found storytelling, and it was just – it was more fun. It was more – there was more depth to it. It was more um, – uh, it was just more fulfilling. So that's what I've been doing for about uh, seven years now. And I, I also get other people to come up on stage and tell true stories uh, about their lives. And that's uh, – that takes a uh, – that takes up a lot of time in my life, and I really love it. That that's fantastic. Is that a uh, is? Do you get paid for that then? No, no. You know that's so funny. It's the first thing anyone says, <laughs> uh, especially when they see like a packed house, and they're like, "Dude, how much money are you making?" And uh, there's something about this type of show, this truthful, true storytelling thing, where to me, it would just change the vibe if I charged people. Right. And I'm I'm only doing it because I know how helpful it's been for me and I want other people to have a venue and a place to get up and share stuff they've lived through. And, you know, I make them put it in a story format. So it's not therapy and it's not a, you know, a support group, but you know, you don't have to be a comic to be able to do this because we've all told stories about what we lived through. And so I purposely have never charged anyone, uh, anything. It, it, it does cost a lot of money and, and time to do it, but and I, I guess, I guess I consider it my tithing to the world. Right. Like I can do it. I have the skills and the time uh -huh. to create this little place for for people to share stories. And so, no money. I, I made a lot more money doing stand up, but that was um, uh, that was at the cost of my soul. I think so. Right. right. <laughs> I think I'm a little better off now. Yeah. So I think that was really the impetus of my question. Like you were doing stand up, you're making money. Now you're doing this other piece and not making money. Do you, um, and you're not doing the stand up anymore. So do you have a, a regular full time gig on the side as well? On the side? Yeah, yeah. I I got a day job. Okay. And uh, uh, I work in. Uh, who knows who's listening to this? I won't. I'm not going to out my uh, people I work with. But uh, I, I have a great day job. I work in communications. I turn uh, I turn what they write into like English. Basically, okay. I work with I work with a lot of really smart people, a lot of right. people who know science and policy and stuff, and uh, I help them with their speeches and their powerpoints and their writing, 
And uh, and they love that because then they don't have to deal with that. They just give it to Paul. He'll he'll turn it into something uh, people can understand, and we're both happy. They give me <laughs> they give me healthcare and a paycheck, and yeah. we're all happy. Oh, that's fantastic. That it's really yeah. funny because I feel like I'm almost going through a deja vu. I can't even remember who it was, but just within the last week, I met somebody in person and explained their job very similarly. Like. Um, oh really? They they take the technical terminology in in mm-hmm. a particular field and they write it so that uh, the typical layperson can understand it. And I yeah, know it wasn't a... <laughs> you because I'm not out in Washington. <laughs> <laughs> it's so important. I mean, I go through life reading things like, man, who edited this? Even I can't understand it. And I'm a pretty good reader. Right. And um, it's I finally kind of. I guess I accidentally job crafted this thing for me, but when my boss and everyone around me figured out that I love to to rewrite stuff into something I think is compelling, that mm-hmm. you know, now comes the tidal wave of of all the good, all that stuff, and it's it's still fun. I still uh, I love doing it, and it's a little bit it's a little bit like helping people with their storytelling. I do a lot of that. Right. I still I still have friends in stand up. I help write material for them, but I also help people who have never been on stage before or um, I help people with TED talks. Also, I I help them figure out how to say what they want to say in a way that everyone else can understand it. And it's compelling. And that's, um, I just, I love that more than being on stage myself. That is really cool. I was going to ask you where you get your passion from. Is it from the work you do through the storytelling and that, um, and setting those all up and working with those people or is it through your day job that you sound like you really enjoy as well? You know, I think I think all my life I've been trying to write the perfect sentence, and that I, I can as far back as I can remember, I was always writing something, um, and I've always just loved the language and and playing with words. And I grew up listening to George Carlin, who was very who was very language oriented, and. Um, and so I've always looked for something to do with language. I was a reporter for a while in Alaska where I grew up. Um, and then I started uh, writing funny columns and I started doing stand-up. So it's all been this progression to – I think I've been trying to get to a safe place where I can do all this writing, where I'm not begging people for money. Like when you do stand-up, you know, most of your time is spent on the phone begging someone to pay you to do comedy. Right, right. And – and now that I don't have to do that, uh, it's very freeing. So I can talk about anything I want. I can talk about the most uncomfortable parts of my life on stage, and I don't have to worry about, you know, a theater paying me or a mm-hmm. bar paying me or whoever. It's like this is just out there for you guys and for me. And um, when you take the money out, you can be, you know, you can be a lot more honest. You can be a lot more. Um, you can be a lot more brave, a lot more courageous, I think, because you're not worried about, you know, what other people are thinking so much. Exactly. Or if that comedy club will invite you back or uh, it it must take away all pressure and you can be you. Oh man, it is so freeing. So freeing. Yeah, that is really cool. And, and to not have to be funny every 20 seconds, because that's kind of like, if you want to be on TV and you've got like a five minute spot on the tonight show, it's like, you got to, you got to just slam these punchlines home. And after, you know, if you're on, if you're a headliner, you're doing that for an hour every night. It's, 
Yeah. It's kind of monotonous. You know, there's oh, so yeah. much more you can talk about or you want to talk about, but you can't because it's comedy night at the Chuckle Hut. Right. And, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That is cool. The uh, stories that people tell, are they a lot uh, related to mental health or suicide attempts or any anything related along those lines? Or the, is it a wide variety, kind of like the moth, which I know you mentioned? Yeah, well, I always have a theme. I do it every month, and there's always a theme. But we do get a wide variety. I mean, most of the stories are funny, but, I mean, there'll be stretches where we'll have someone get up and tell a suicide story every show for three months. And then we'll have a, a story about someone who, um, you know, was in a psych ward for two weeks and there's that story. And it's, you know, it kind of all fits in. The audience is so patient and, and, and kind and just loving in this particular room where I do this. I mean, it's in a coffee shop in Seattle. It's a big coffee shop, stays open at night. And uh, everyone is now used to this. Like we're going to get a really funny story about someone's puppy, you know, falling off a pier. And then we're going to get a story about someone who survived a suicide attempt right, or right. maybe maybe found their kid after a successful suicide attempt. Right. And I, I get up there afterward and I, I give them a hug or I I talk for just a few seconds about how much that meant for me to hear and probably everyone else. And then we go on to another show, which could be, I mean, another, another storyteller, which could be, you know, somebody's trip to Florida. It's all right. But it's just like life. You get all these, all these really different stories all centered around the theme. And the, the best part is at the end of the show, when I see people talking to each other yeah, and, yeah. and they never met each other before. You know, it's just because you shared that story that people come up and say, me too. And then we're, there, we're all there for an hour and a half afterwards just talking, like a hundred of us, you know. Right. Oh, it just sounds amazing. Um, it, so I got two questions about that. One is, uh, mm -hmm. how can our listeners now, if anybody's in that area, find out about the shows and where to go for them uh, and information about them? And secondly, um, do do you have the the storytellers audition or is it open to anybody? <laughs> no, that's the joy. Well, first of all, if anyone wants to come to the show, uh, you can go to freshgroundstories.com. Uh, we're actually a meetup. That's how I, I get the email. So if you Google fresh ground stories and Seattle, you'll find the, the meetup site and you can join the group for free. And then you'll get my monthly emails, which tell everyone what the upcoming theme is. And I, I always do a little wrap up of the show that we just did. Um, but as far as the, the storytellers, I, I don't even know who's going to show up. Oh, and I, I don't cool. vet. I know. It's really scary. I mean, I got a lot of rules because it's a public place. You yeah, can't talk right. about. You can't do sex stories. You can't curse. I mean, there's a, I don't allow any political rants. Uh, no um, and, and no stand-up. If mm -hmm. somebody starts cussing or something, then do you just do, do you run out there and tackle them? Or like, I mean, it's a live show. <laughs> I, I get a look on my face that startles them. <laughs> all right, uh, all right. And the weird thing, like I say all these rules beforehand and I explain, look, you know, not everyone is here for the show. Some people are working on their resumes in the back of the coffee right, shop. Right. Some people are here with their grandma. Some people, there's, it could be, <laughs> yeah. you know, we've had 12 year old kids get up and tell a story. So like people get it. Like they that don't. Cool. And, and every now and then someone will, like, I think I've, in seven years, I've asked maybe three people not to come back because they just couldn't stop right. with 
the the type of story that is not appropriate. It could be a great story. I could I could be laughing. I could be falling out of my chair, and I'll have to get up and go, dude. You can't <laughs> right. not that save that for the late show at another club somewhere. Oh, it sounds amazing. And do you record these? These would be a great podcast, like the Moth. You know, live from the coffee shop with Paul Curran. Well, you would think, but here's the thing: in the beginning, um. I used to have people sign a little, you know, a waiver saying, you know, I may, if I, if I like the story, I'll, I'll put it. And nobody, nobody signed it. <laughs> really? Like it they were too personal. Huh, so okay. now I do an audio recording of the show. And if people want, I send them their story, just okay. their story. Right. And, and also I think it serves as a good way to get people to, to come out. Cause I don't, I don't want people listening online. Right. I want, I want people to come and see the human being. being. Yeah. There is something like the other, but two months ago, we had a young woman who told a story, which I consider kind of the last taboo. No one had ever told a story like this. She told the story of her abortion. And wow. it, she didn't tell anyone what to think. She didn't say, um, she didn't turn it into anything political or no, there were no, there was no social commentary. It was just, this is what I experienced. Right. This is what happened to me. This is why I did it. And at the end of the story, she said, we all have our own opinions. I'm not going to tell you what you should think. But when you talk about this subject, know that you're talking about someone like me. I'm not a talking point and I'm not a statistic. I'm a woman with a story. Right. Wow. And then she just walked off. How powerful. And three people came up to her after the show uh, to talk to her. Three women. Mm-hmm. And it was it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen at at that show. That and she, this woman is such an introvert. She's so quiet. She has a hard time with feelings. Yeah. She's only told like maybe three stories in all the years she's been coming. And um, it was so amazing for that that woman of all the people that have come uh, to tell that story. And, and at the end, not to tell people what to think, just to say, you know what. When you talk about this, you're talking about a human being yeah. who really has given this a lot of thought, whether you agree with it or not. Right. So just remember that. And it was yeah. it was so beautiful that she ended it that way. Yeah, that is powerful. And just to bring you back to the main point, your point was how powerful it is having people there, right? And how people experience that yeah. and then are able to even connect with her in person. Where if you have a headset on and you're just listening to it, like our listeners, <laughs> exactly. they aren't going to be able to have that personal connection, which is huge. So that, that's really cool. So I'm going to yeah. um, bring us on to the main topic of the show, which is um, men and depression. And I'm going to make a connection here because you did talk about how important writing has been to you. And yeah. I... Um, People who are listening may not know this, but before I have a guest on the show, I have them fill out a short um, questionnaire, a podcast guest info form, I call it, so that I can prepare a bit. And I usually don't mention it, but yours had a particular sentence that really stood out to me, and I wanted to lead into the next topic with this. And you had written that, and this is exactly, I believe, exactly what you wrote, a friend of depression most of you've been what you would call a friend of depression most of my life, but didn't take it seriously until I had a suicide attempt in 2012. So there's a lot yeah. packed into that. So for one, um, you made it sound like you, you pretty much knew for a long, long time that you were dealing with depression. 
but really mm-hmm. didn't, you know, what do you mean? First of all, I'm curious when you believe you thought or knew you had depression or something going on, like at what age did that happen? Uh, well, you know, as I remember, I remember, um, I was in my early teens, 12, 13, 14, and I had a, I had a rough mom, man. She, she had a, a volcanic temper. She was this Jewish lady from uh, Brooklyn and she was also an actress. So she had this drama and this giant voice. And when you spoke to her, you, no matter where you were, you, she, you just got this feeling of power and, and anger. And not everyone saw the anger, but you felt the power. I saw the anger, and my dad uh, did too. But so I remember as a kid thinking, "Man, why? Why is this house so angry? I mean, yelling every day." And we were already different because my mom was Jewish, and we were we were growing up in Alaska, and there was like there were no there was no Jews, there were no yeah. no East Coast people really that I knew. Right. So we were the freaks, right. and. And I, my dad left pretty early, you know, she chased him off. And I was just left wondering, like, what, is it me? Is, is, is she crazy? Like, what? I don't know anyone that acts like this. And so was it just you and your mom? Yeah, yeah, it was just okay. me and her. And then one time she gave me a gift, and it was a, a collection of essays uh, by Woody Allen uh, from The New Yorker. And that was kind of the first time I realized <laughs> that... Uh, uh, a, we're Jewish. <laughs> right. Like, I, I knew it. Like, I, mean, I knew it, but it wasn't, like, I'd never met anyone else as Jewy as her. So I thought, well, she's just, right. <laughs> that's just mom. Then I'm reading Woody Allen stuff he wrote in the 60s and 70s. Really, really funny. But he talked a lot about depression and therapists and, and angst. And I thought, oh, that's, that's what I am. And that's what she is. She's a Jewish mother. That's why she's crazy. <laughs> I now it's all makes sense. Um, but even back then, I mean, I just felt so alone and um, just confused as to why this was. I didn't think a mom should act this way. You didn't think she should. You should be saying those things to your kid based on what other mothers were saying to their kids, even when they were upset. And do you have examples so, of the the kinds of things she would say that? that you don't think others had heard at that age? Well, you know, I could be wrong, because I don't know what everyone, other mothers said, but I remember as a kid thinking that she was the only one. I remember uh, joking with my friends, you know, in my early teenage years, and I would ask them, uh, I would say, like, so is, is it weird that my mom calls me a shit? Because I thought it was shithead. <laughs> that makes more sense. Like, yay, everyone says you're a shithead, but my mom says you're a shit. Somehow that seems worse. <laughs> that it's that ending T, you know? It's like you're not even a shithead. You're just you're just nothing but shit. Yeah, <laughs> you're just I, like you're just total noun shit. Uh, I think you have a point. Like I do just <laughs> shit does feel you a little worse a than, than a shithead. Yeah. Um for <laughs> whatever heads, reason that might like, be, not that either are appropriate for a parent to be calling their kid. Right. I mean, shithead, you could think, well, maybe that's a doll we bought for someone we don't like. You know, say, did you get the shithead doll, shithead bobblehead doll for Tommy? But, I mean, if someone calls you a shit, like, they're really mad. Yeah. You can can call someone a shithead. Hey, you're a crazy shithead, you knucklehead. But it's close to knucklehead, you know, which isn't so bad. But uh, 
And so she would say, you know, she would never say the F word. That was just a very strange, I ever, she'd say everything but that. Yeah. I never, never understood that. But um, so there was just a lot of, and just a lot of, of blaming and screaming. She would, you know, blame me for hiding her cigarettes or her glasses. When really, you know, I'm hiding in my room, uh, trying to, right, right. trying to pretend, you know, there's something good in the world. Was she physical um, with you too? No, no. In fact, there was a time when I asked her to start, I asked her to hit me instead of yell at me because it was just, it was too brutal, too emotional to hear her say those things. And I finally sat her down. I said, could you just, could you just start hitting me? I think, I think that would be easier. Keep your voice down and just smack me once or twice. And God bless her. She tried. She audit, she gave it a shot. I don't think it was as emotionally satisfying for her to hit me. So oh it lasted goodness, like a week awful. of like slapping me on the arm or the butt or the back of the, you know, and she's, and I think by that time I was bigger than her. Right. So I think, yeah, it just, it didn't make her happy. Yeah. <laughs> it made yeah. her more happy to, to, uh, to just rip my, rip my heart out with words, which right. really, when you think about it is much more effective. Oh my goodness. If you really want to hurt someone. Do you think she had uh, different mental health issues herself? Uh, you know, looking back, I can see the face of depression in her yeah. because she really, she really did struggle. I mean, I know, I know she, it, it's a, it's weird to say, but she really did love me. Like she, she, there's no doubt in my mind, she would have taken a bullet for me. Yeah. Um, she also would have shot me if she'd had a cut. I mean, there's two, like she would, she was on the extreme. So I knew that I was loved. It was just in a way that. Didn't, didn't, didn't really make, work for me. Yeah, it didn't make a lot yeah. of sense to you, it sounds like. Right. I don't know if it would make a lot of sense for many kids at all. No, it wasn't. So but so so I knew that she was struggling because she was a single parent. Yeah. And it was Alaska. She couldn't be, she couldn't get paid to be, she gave up uh, being an actress in Hollywood to move to Alaska. Uh, and then uh, um, she found herself, you know, married and then not married and then a single parent. So she had to really uh, hustle to get jobs. Right, right. And so we were always like, did she move to Alaska for your dad? No, no, it was a, it's a great mystery why she did that. I mean, I knew the superficial story in the, in the early to mid sixties. Uh, my, uh, my mom was living in Hollywood and she was in sitcoms. Okay. She was in, she would get bit parts in like bewitched and Dennis the menace and <laughs> wow, Hazel. Awesome. And, yeah, 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 totally cool. I don't yeah. ever remember Bewitched having a really angry witch, but <laughs> but I would imagine that would be the one she would have played. Uh, I found I did find the the one episode of Bewitched she was on. She was a woman on plane, and she was <laughs> she yelling she at the flight to, attendants. No, she wasn't. It was okay. the only it was the only uh, episode I ever saw her on where she wasn't laying into someone. She was often cast as a gypsy gypsy girl, okay. gypsy woman, and and, you know, gypsies have tempers. So she was like, I remember watching Dennis the Menace once. I finally got the episode she was on. And she got mad at Mr. <laughs> Mr. Mitchell or whatever the neighbor's name was. And I almost fell off the couch. I said to my son, that's the face. That's the face she used to make at me. And I was like, oh, my God, she was doing that 10 years before I was born. She just laid it to, you know, that's Dennis funny. the Menace's neighbor. So she... In Hollywood at that time, I've learned, like in the mid-60s, there was this religion going around that began uh, in Persia in the early, 
1800s, mid-1800s, called the Baha'i Faith. And my mother got turned on to this, and she got so inspired and wrapped up in this religion that she, uh, she, she gave up Judaism and became a member of the Baha'i Faith. And because she, she only lived in extremes, she said, I, I need to tell the world about this. Where do you need me to go? and pioneered the faith. So that's what they call being a missionary. Okay, right. And at that point, the people said, well, uh, Alaska just became a state. <laughs> Why don't you go up there? And she did. Wow. And it was crazy that she would do that. She went up with there with her three cats and never, she'd never lived anywhere outside of New York or Los Angeles. Right. So she flies up there to Alaska. The day she got there, she met my dad. And after a while, they, you start dating and they got married. And so for a large part of my, well, for all of my mom's life that she spent up there, she was a, ba a Baha'i missionary. And we would fly in these tiny little planes all over the state to, to these little fishing villages in the bush. And she would, she would do this thing, which was very embarrassing for me, uh, for me. She would bring God to the natives, which even as a, as a child, I knew was a bad idea. <laughs> like, I read, I can read. I, this traditionally has never worked out, <laughs> especially for the natives, but also for the, the missionaries. Like, you know, <laughs> so, why are we... So were you raised in the Baha'i faith or in the Jewish faith? I was, I was raised in the Baha'i faith by this really Jewy lady from New York. <laughs> so she had the accent and uh, like we were not allowed no to talk about the Holocaust. No wonder you became a comedian. No wonder it, it, you've dealt with depression. I was, yes. It sounds... <laughs> I was Sounds trained. Amazing. I had to learn all. She would teach me, like the shuffle off to Buffalo. Like it was really important for me to learn this, this move, this dance move. For, for why I don't know. But she, she would teach me these vaudeville things, and it's like, really, which, which of course is very Jewy, you know. And she would assume that I would have to tell jokes or sing a song in a corner for food. <laughs> uh, and so I had this weird Jewish culture at home, but the religion was this was this religion no one had ever heard of in Alaska. Right. And I was embarrassed to tell people, like, you know, we're members of the Baha'i Faith. And I mean, the the the, uh, the prophet of the Baha'i Faith, his name is Baha'u'llah. And okay. his picture was always on our wall. And if we saw it today, he would look like, uh, well, he would look like a terrorist. He's a, he's a Persian guy with a turban. And people would, my friends would see this picture on the wall and they would, ask if it was my grandpa and i would say yes yes that's my grandpa and then let's move on to the let's go, let's go play with a toy because i i can't explain the baha'i faith to you i don't know what it is but we would so my mom would you know go talk to Aleuts and athabascans and uh, you know eskimos and just all over the all over the state bringing this this religion to people and it was uh, it was hard for my dad to deal with and it was just embarrassing for me as a kid to be slept along uh, to do all these things well your dad met her in Alaska so he knew what he was getting into right which yeah, is more than you could say you would you <laughs> right. would think he knew I think he found out pretty quick that um, you know my mom when when she was pregnant with me she told my dad that she wanted to go out to the Pribilof Islands, which is these two tiny rocks in the Bering Sea, like miles from anywhere. The plane only went out like once a week to drop off supplies. And she said, there's never been a Baha'i out there. I got to go. 
there's 200 Aleuts, 500 fur seals, and her. She said, I got, I got to go. I'm, <laughs> I'm being called. So she flew out there. And you're not supposed to be on the island unless you're an Aleut or you work for the government as like fish and wildlife. But she, she got off the plane and she just yelled at the guy until the plane took off. And, he, and the guy said, well, I guess you better find a place to live. And there is no place to live. So she just <laughs> talked her way into renting a room and told everyone she was writing a book about fur seals or the Pripyloff Islands. But secretly, she was there for the Baha'i faith. <laughs> Undercover Baha'i missionary. And that's why I was born there in this tiny little fish and wildlife hospital uh, by the, the Baha'i spy. That is that's why I'm named Paul. That is amazing. That is also, I'm getting a better feel for why you are in <laughs> storytelling. you got a lot of I stories to share. I guess so. I've never, I've never told that story on stage. <laughs> I, I think my dad was so upset, like he couldn't get her off the island. And he, was, <laughs> he had to pay for my birth with it, like a, a sack of duck and salmon because... No money could change hands because she was there illegally. It was almost like, almost like some Russian weird, you know, spy novel. So, you know, my dad <laughs> shot a bunch of birds and got a bunch of fish and went, well, give the doctor that. I guess that'll hope that's enough for the kid. Was, was that about the time when he left? <laughs> that's probably when it started to occur to him that he, she may not just be the funny actress that he thought she was getting right. off the plane in Anchorage. Um, wow, but that was a story. Yeah, that was our life. That was my life for a while. So this uh, this does come back to finally like understanding and realizing that depression was a, a friend in your life. I don't know. Yeah. back to that. Yeah, I mean, in question. I, <laughs> I saw my mom very depressed, and I I thought then it was like, well, we're just out of money, and we have to you know sell things. Um, but now I know, like I know that face. Like that's the face of despair, man. Right. And um, and then, um, she she died when I was a senior in high school. Oh, she, you're kidding? She, yeah, she got cancer from. She was a chain smoker, oh. like two or three packs a day, and uh, and then I my father lived you know hundreds of miles away in another town, and I didn't want to live with him. He, like, I barely saw him for the you know, the half of my life anyway. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to leave my friends. Like those were the only people I had left in the world. So I just told my dad, you know, I'll, I'll handle it. I'll... And so I, I just slept at friends' houses, you know, maybe he gave them some money. I don't know if he gave these people some money to feed me or whatever, but I kind of, I kind of couch surfed for many years after that. I, you know, I graduated high school and how um, many, what year were you in high school when your mom passed away? Uh, just started my senior year. She, Okay. She got sick, like around Halloween, and she was dead before Christmas. Wow! It was very the 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 the, the worst part was neither of us knew she was sick until the the tumors uh, popped up in her head, and she got aphasia, which means you can't really speak. Like every word, it's right on the tip of your tongue. Right. So you can't even you can't even communicate if you if you. If you want someone to pass you the milk, you end up saying, can I, can you give me the, like the, the white water thing right. over there? Wow. So that must've been really tough on you. Yeah, man. It was like, I didn't know what was wrong with her at first. I thought maybe she was just tired. Then a, a few days later, I ended up getting her to the hospital. We, <laughs> she never learned to drive. So we ended up like t 
taking a bus everywhere, you mm. know, so we, it's weird to take a bus to the hospital for cancer, but, um, we got her diagnosed and the doctor said, yeah, she's, um, she's going to die like really quick. Wow. And it was, I think it was like six weeks, you know? And then, uh, how did the, the two of you handle that? You and your mom. I have no idea how she handled it, man. Cause she couldn't, yeah, part of it was sad because this woman who was an amazing speaker and an amazing communicator was absolutely silenced Right. at the most important moment in her life where she need, you need to say something to somebody, especially your kid. Like I know she wanted to say things to me, but she, she couldn't even write, you know? So she was in the hospital for a while and then she left the hospital. She, I remember she showed up in my high school just wandering the halls, confused. And people would tell me, hey, I saw your mom down by the math wing. I'm like, nah, my mom's not here. And then she was. And I had to take her home. She, she just got confused. You know, she thought she didn't have insurance. She thought, why am I in this hospital? And, you know, finally, you know, a few weeks later, she passed away. And, and then it was just like, well, here's life. Um, do your best, kid. Man, I can't uh, imagine that. You were on your own. And having yeah. to watch your mom go through that had to have been so painful. Did you have support at school or anybody you were talking to? You know, I had three or four really good friends. Really good friends that I mean they didn't know what to say. They're all we're all seventeen. Right. Seventeen, sixteen, eighteen, but I would not have made it without them. And I, I'm sure the teachers all knew. Yeah. I'm sure they were all looking out for me, even though I didn't know it. Right. Um, and my dad tried to be supportive from 400 miles away, mm-hmm. but you know, he could, he could write a check and say, Hey, could you take my kid for a month? Here's some, but you know, we emptied out the, the, the apartment where we lived. And, um, the, the, the worst part was like for all my life, I really hated my mom. <laughs> like I, she was so mean. Um, I, I used to write, uh, parody songs before, uh, anyone had heard of Weird Al and oh, yeah. the one everyone liked in school was, uh, a parody of, uh, Simon and Garfunkel's 50 ways to leave your lover, which I rewrote as 50 ways to kill your mother. <laughs> and <laughs> oh my! <laughs> 30 years later, friends will call me and sing little snippets of that. <laughs> and that was how I dealt with like this madness in, in the house was just trying to be funny and make this darkness somehow bearable right. in its absurdity. But so when she was sick, I was sad and I was worried, but I was also angry at her yeah. because I didn't want to take care of this person that I just had been so mean to me. Right. And then I would feel guilty. And then I would say, you know what? She's done everything for you. She loves you. She's, she's a Jewish mother and that's weird. And you know, if you've ever been around those women, like you get it, they're really, they can be very volatile, but there's no doubt that there's love there. Like they would, they would, you know, they would strangle someone for you. They would strangle a puppy for their kid. Really a Jewish mother would do this. And so like I had to, I knew that, but at the same time I would look at her and go, well, I hope you're happy. I told you to stop smoking. Now look where we are. And it was, um, so I had all this guilt and, and grief and worry. Like, what am I going to do? I don't, um, and, and after that, I, I just floated man for years and, um, I got no therapy or anything like that at the time. 
Now, my, my dad asked me that year, uh, or for graduation, he asked me what I wanted. And I, I vividly remember thinking, but without saying, I would really like 10 visits to the therapist, hmm. any therapist. I'd never seen a therapist, but you know, I'd read enough Woody Allen to know that they existed. Right. And I thought, I need, I need a, a, a counselor or a therapist, but I didn't. I said, I, I don't know. I don't know, Dad. I don't, know. I, I don't need anything. I don't need anything. So uh, he bought me a watch. And uh, <laughs> so that was that watch. When I think of that watch, I always think, what would have happened if I had just said what I knew that I needed, which was to talk to someone about how terrified I was at where I was in life, you know? So, um, Tough so to no, I didn't have any. 17, right? Yeah. I mean, so, that's part of uh, the show, you know, talks about the depression files, just the struggles men, adult men, have in right. sharing when they're in need, right? And reaching oh, out for support. Yeah. I can't imagine at 17 years old and essentially on your own, you know, admitting yeah. to your dad, like, I need some help here. I'm scared as hell. And my dad was such a tough guy. Like, he was this, you know, he was in the Navy in World War II, kind of a... He was a frogman, which is kind of like Navy SEALs before the SEALs right. were invented. And he was at all these, you know, he, and he was a boxer. And it was like, oh, I, I can't tell this guy. He, you know what he did? He signed me up for karate class. It's what he did for therapy. <laughs> okay. So he just, so basically, uh, instead of seeing a therapist, I just got punched uh, twice a week <laughs> in the face, which was like, uh, I think my introduction to metaphor, <laughs> I think, was... <laughs> I think, oh, I see where this, I see, let's see if I can make something out of this. I see what this represents. I get it. All oh right. Thanks, goodness. Dad. So after that, like for the next five, six, seven years, I, you know, dropped out of a lot of colleges and, um, cause I was a really good student. I mean, I had a, you know, I could get into colleges, but I was totally unprepared to be on my own and. And, and to stay there and, to, and then to do good work in addition to feeling just completely, utterly alone. Mm. And, and the few friends I had at the time were, were not in college. You know, a lot of half my friends were criminals at that time. And the other half were like these really smart people who were getting, you know, 1600 on their SATs and going off to these great colleges. And um, the colleges uh, you were going to, were they in Alaska? Uh, some of them were. I went to University of Fairbanks, University of uh, Alaska at Anchorage. I went to Pomona College down in, uh, near L.A. Uh, I ended up graduating from the Evergreen State College here in Olympia with a degree in uh, – well, you don't get majors here, but mostly writing. I majored in uh, journalism in, in Alaska. But, like, I couldn't stay. Like, I, I just – you know, I needed to know that somebody loved me. And that I was safe, and I, I didn't have either of those things once I left high school. So I, um, I just floated between friends, and every now and then I'd, I'd have a girlfriend, which would be really, really important to me, because, um, you know, the first girlfriend I had, I was 19, and it was the first time I ever felt loved, and. There was a point where I knew I, I should break up with her. I knew I should leave her because of how the relationship was going, and I couldn't. Yeah. Because if you've never felt loved, and then suddenly you feel loved, you you will do anything to keep that yeah. love. Yeah. 
and I went through a lot of relationships like that uh, for probably decades, actually. Um, so yeah, I, I just no can't, therapy. I can't even imagine being seventeen or eighteen, whatever age it is now, when you head off to college. Like I think about how much my parents were there, helping me move, helping me load up the car, <laughs> helping me figure out how to register for classes and everything. Right, and like you were uh, on yeah. your own. Yeah, oh yeah, it was. It doesn't even like when I have friends now who uh, tell me what their parents did for them. I think really that they wait a minute they helped you with it like a down payment on the house or they uh they helped you just anything they paid for a ticket home for across really right, right. so this is what they people do this is what and, parents you know, <laughs> i mean i would do that for my son but it never occurred to me that anyone would do that for me yeah. anyone and um even my own son that i look at him and i go you have no fear you have no fear of being abandoned. Right. And that, that's, I, like, like, that's good. I'm glad I, I gave him that confidence. Yeah. But at the same time, that is an alien feeling to me. Like, um, I've never not had that. It's, it's not even a fear. It's, one it's just an agreement. We, one of those things we take for granted when we have it, right? Like, I don't yeah. think about how amazing that alone was until I meet someone like you who didn't have that at all. And I'm just thinking like, Man, did I grow up right? <laughs> Lucky I had my. You grew up and... appropriate, yeah. Privileged. I mean, I never. It's funny because I was never safe at home when my mom was alive. It was always like, uh, I mean, I hated myself because I didn't have the courage to run away for right. years, which is stupid. Like, where are you going to go in Alaska? You know, are you going to get to sleep in a tree? You know, right. it's, it's ridiculous. And but I hated myself because I wasn't Tom Sawyer. I didn't build a raft and escape. Right. And I desperately right. wanted to. And um, so you finally you made it through college. You end up mm-hmm. with a, a degree <clears throat> in journalism. Uh, yeah. Writing, basically. Writing. Yeah. And and then what what's next in your life then? Well, by the time I graduated, I did have a kid. I, uh, I didn't get married, but I, I did have this girlfriend and we did make a baby. It's my son. Who, uh, who now is 27 years old, which is a weird, yeah, weird right. thing for me to think. Yeah. Uh, but that was another relationship that I knew should have ended long before. But I was so terribly lonely. Uh, and in Alaska, when I was growing up, there were eight men for every woman. Wow. So the the odds were against me. And I was a weird kid. Like I was, I didn't have this, the kind of personality that women at that point really thought was charming right. i mean now that i'm here in civilization i don't maybe i stand out a little bit but there are more women at least at my age now who appreciate you know the fact that i speak and that i'm honest and that i talk <laughs> about funny things weird things back then i was just a freak so i never like i didn't have a girl a real girlfriend until i was 19 and and even then it was like you know every five six seven years i'd get a girlfriend so i was tremendously lonely and uh so I, I met this woman and she liked me and i liked her for a little while and then it, it didn't work out but i we had problems we had problems breaking up so we made it we ended up making a kid uh, and um and then we split up when my son was maybe one and um over the years i i had primary custody and he saw his mom every other weekend okay but that is really 
Well, it's really hard. When, when my son was, um, I think, eight, maybe five, I started doing stand-up. And I didn't realize at that time, like, you can't, you can't be a single parent and do stand-up. You just can't. Because you got to go on the road to make any money. Right. And I just thought, no, I can wing this. I can, I can figure something out. So I, that was in Alaska when I started doing stand-up. And I realized pretty quick, I have, to, I have to move, I have to move at least back to Washington, back to civilization, um, to have any shot at a comedy career. So I talked to my son's mom, and her new husband. She just she married at that point, had another kid with him, that they should move down to Olympia, Washington, with me. Because I wasn't going to leave my son, not for comedy or anything. So I wasn't going to do that. And I didn't want to take my kid away from his mom. As much as, as difficult as it was for me to deal with her, I would have never started doing comedy if, if she had said, no, I'm not leaving Alaska. But luckily it was, that year was one of the coldest winters on record there. (laughs) And he and her, she and her husband were like, yeah, I guess we can move. And, uh, um, she and I had lived in Olympia for a year while I was finishing up college here. So we knew the area and, uh, we moved down here and that's when they really started doing stand up um, really seriously going out whenever I didn't have my son, uh, I would go out and do open mics and finally do paid gigs. But you know, that lasted a, a number of years before I realized, you know, I can't, I can't do this to my kid. I can't, you know, you can't have your kid sitting sitting in your car while you run into a, a bar and do comedy for 30 minutes or an hour. You just right. can't, you know, or, you know, stick them in a, a Denny's booth while you run into the Denny's lounge and tell, you know, dirty jokes and run tell the waitress, take care of your kid. It's just like, you can't do that. And, um, and it's so I tried to, you know, I did comedy part-time for like 13 years and full-time for a year. And I just, so many things happened that realize I realized I can't do this and be the kind of father I need to be for my son and we were still really tight you know I hadn't ruined anything with him but I could see that you know this this was not working so um so a big part of my son's life was watching his dad tell jokes right you know and and, how was um, your mental health at that point were you doing all right I don't know man it's hard to (laughs) you go out like and my son on the weekends with his mom, I could go out on the road. And the thing with stand-up is you go, you're going to every place you never wanted to go in the world. You're at Spearfish, South Dakota and Winnemucca, Nevada and weird places in the Midwest. And you're just, it's really lonely. Like for someone like me, like I know now I will not take a job if I, if I'm going to be alone for long stretches of time, because that is devastating for my depression. Right. I need to be around people. I need that kind of energy. Yeah. And I thought the comedy would take care of that, but you're, you're only in the club for an hour and you're dealing with a bunch of drunk people <laughs> right. and, and evil club owners. And it's like, well, this is horrible. And it was before the internet. So I didn't even have that. You know, there were, nobody had hardly ever had cell phones. And so, um, my, I could see my mental health was, was definitely, um, getting shakier and shakier. And, uh, um, at some point, uh, I started taking Zoloft, which, which helped, but it didn't, I thought it would make me happy. It turns out it just kind of stabilized me. Yeah. So Did I would you go get that off through a family doctor. 
Yeah, yeah. I was seeing so, a therapist. Okay. I was going to ask she, what, uh, you know, when did you make that decision to go see a therapist? It was, it was after a breakup. It's always after a breakup. <laughs> uh, and it was really, really bad breakup. Excuse me. It was a really, really bad breakup. And I thought, I got to see someone. So I went to this lady that was recommended, and uh, she was super helpful. But after a few months or even a couple of years, maybe, she said, I, you know, I think you really are, like, clinically depressed. And she ran me through this test. I think it's like 12 questions. And if you get a certain score or higher, you're depressed. And, and I was. I think I got, like, you know, 11 out of 12. And she said, I, I, I would ask you to consider talking to your doctor about some some antidepressants and I did I went to my family doctor and um, he prescribed them and then I, I, I would go off and on for years so you had been seeing your therapist for quite some time it sounds like before she finally said hey maybe you're clinically depressed after all yeah probably and a couple years yeah really um, okay a yeah because I mean and then she recommended going to see your family doctor to have the conversation around yeah, because I would. Meds. There were times when I would do well, and you know, I would just go for maintenance. But then right. there were finally there were times where I just like I didn't. There were no upswings, there were, uh, and it's like I, no matter what she said or did or what I did, you know, I would always do my homework. Everything she told me to do, I would do, and it wasn't working. Right. And um, so and you then go to your family I, doc. They give you Zoloft. Yeah, and uh, I got lucky. I got lucky on the first try. Zoloft seems to work. And, but it, you know, I didn't have a good understanding of, you know, <laughs> have a good understanding of what, ha what happy was for one thing yeah. or, or what the pills were going to do. So they definitely, they helped, they helped me to stop bottoming out, but I, I thought they would do more. How many so years I would go ago was this? A, oh, bleh, 10, maybe okay. 10, 15. Right. Um, so I would stop and I would always stop maybe somewhere around the time when I got into girlfriend every few years like, oh, now I'm happy because someone loves me. Right. And then, and then you know, that would go away. And then I say, well, I, maybe I should try those things again. Um, and then what, what really changed everything was uh, I was with a woman for seven years who I absolutely adored. And I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her. And I, you know, I wanted to get married and everything. And, uh, uh, and then we broke up. And then we, you know, we stayed together off and on for a year and a half, kind of, you know, not really together, but seeing each other a little bit. And then she, she actually, she got another boyfriend and I didn't know it. I, I found out. And that was what put me, that was what began my, like the, the big meltdown in my life that led to, uh, you know, my attempt and my recovery. And, and now, how long? Absolutely. Oh, go ahead. No. Well now it's, it, I can honestly say it's the best thing that ever happened to me because it, it, it needed to be something that bad to make me turn my life around. Right. If I hadn't crashed that hard, I just would have kept muddling through for years and years, maybe had a few more attempts, you know. This was so startling in its, uh, in its depth and just the absolute – there was no – I was falling and there was no bottom. I just kept falling. And um, How long were you – going downhill in this um, depressive cycle before the attempt? Before About a year and a half. Year and a half. And uh, almost, almost two years. 
Yeah, okay. yeah, I was taking my, my Zoloft. It was almost two years yeah. of spiral, 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 down, down, down. And, and what, uh, what kind of symptoms were you going through then? Um, lethargy, uh, no, you know, definitely no energy to do anything good for myself. Uh, a lot of just dark thoughts. I was researching suicide, you know, just going on the internet, trying to figure out what was the most effective or least painful. And, uh, it was just horrible. I mean, when I think back to, I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to look at my browser history now from yeah. 2010 to 2012. I mean, it would just, so if, anyone, if the government was buying a, <laughs> where you were a long period of time where you were yeah. researching and such and were you, yeah, were you getting was, sleep? I mean, I know you said you didn't uh, have energy. Uh, no, nah, you know, you, was your, were you losing? No, it was all, weight? it was, it was all, um, it was all nothing. I couldn't do anything good for myself. I even have a, my life coach fired me. <laughs> he, he was so, he didn't know I was going through this stuff. Yeah. But right in the middle of our work, I had hired him to just help me get my writing in shape and go to the next level in storytelling. And and then this big breakup happened after about three months. He's like, dude, I, I'm not going to waste my time or your money working with you. And I didn't have the energy or the heart to tell him what I was going through. I just went, yeah, okay. Life coach, fine. Got dumped by him. <laughs> and and um, and it was – I honestly don't know how I survived those two years of just constant – but I had a little bit of hope that we would get back together. That was the thing. Okay. And then when that hope was gone, like like you heard in the story that I sent you, um, there was no reason to stay alive. And I know now I was that whole night. It was one long panic attack, which I had never really experienced anything on that level. Like I really thought I was losing my mind. I couldn't control my body, my thoughts, my, anything, my heart. Um, and was that the exact same night that you had found out she had a boyfriend? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I was. Um, I went to uh, uh, to see a friend of mine play guitar in downtown Olympia at this tiny little coffee shop, and I was sitting in the back uh, waiting for him to start. Probably couldn't have been more than twenty people in this place. This tiny little hole in the wall, and uh, my ex walks in and she sees me and we wave and I go, "Oh, I, I hadn't seen her in a while." And I thought, you know, great, maybe you know we'll. Maybe we'll meet up tonight. Maybe she'll she'll come over because we were still like kind of off and on, you know, spending right. the weekends together occasionally. And uh, and the show starts, and she's sitting with some mutual friends up front. And uh, about ten minutes after the show begins, uh, this guy walks in, and she walks over and she sits down next to him, like ten feet away from me, and he puts his hand around her, and he starts running his hand up and down her back and up and down her back. And I realized, like this, this is not a friend. This is a boyfriend. And I can't get away. I'm trapped. He's like ten feet away, and I'm seeing his running his hand all over her back. And I'm, like for twenty minutes, there was the, my my friend wouldn't stop singing, and I'm just I'm just slowly losing my mind. And finally, there was a break in the show, and I just ran out of there. And I know she she had no idea I was going to be there. I know. There's no doubt that she would never have done that to me. Right. She would not have shown up if she knew I was going to. Because she, I still care about her. We still care about each other. But right. it was this horrible sequence of events. And a lot of just crazy stuff happened that night after I ran out of the coffee shop. But that was the night I went home and, you know, tried to end my life. Mm -hmm. 
and and that night was kind of um, a boiled down version of the whole two years before that of up until then I was slowly slowly circling the drain with that tiny bit of hope we'd get back together and then when that was dashed it's like all that despair from the last two years just um, combined into one night and I thought I I cannot live with this pain anymore and uh, and that was that and I was I was lucky that all the energy it took to kill myself that night um, uh, it ended up kind of knocking me out like not unconscious but uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go into all the, uh, the methods and all right, that stuff but right. There was a point like at 200 morning where I just collapsed on the floor of my living room, mm-hmm. completely exhausted. Couldn't, I could, couldn't move, couldn't think from trying to end my life for the two or three previous hours. And, uh, right. and it, somehow I found uh, an 800 number and I called a crisis line and uh, I was on the crisis line for, you know, hour, two hours, maybe middle of the night. And, and the guy, he, he you know what I think happens is on these crisis signs, they just knock you out of that rut you're in, that rut of inevitability. They, they get you, they get you out of that rut where you're not hyper-focused on ending your life. And so by, by this time it was like three in the morning and I just, I passed out, I was exhausted. Uh, and... The next day, I had made this promise to the guy on the phone that I would call a doctor, and um, they didn't. They did, didn't send was, an emergency vehicle or anybody over that night. No, no, because uh, well, I didn't have a gun. That's that was the main thing. Like he talked me out yeah. um, of the if he. It, it was. Um, yeah, I've I've written about it, and it's hard to believe uh, <laughs> all the things. At first, I thought the guy was an idiot. Like, why are you, why are you giving asking me all these really black and white questions? It was almost like he was interrogating me first. I guess he wanted to know the level of of danger if I had already taken a bunch of pills or if I had a gun like in my lap. Right. And when he realized it was it was other stuff I was trying to do, it was like, okay, we can, I'm going to talk to this guy for as long as it takes for him, maybe just to pass out, you know, because. Chances are, you know, if you wake up the next day, well, you know, you're probably going to live at least that day. And, you know, <laughs> I guess, I guess, in my <laughs> I, guess mind, I just would assume like he would be sending an emergency vehicle while he's trying to talk to you to make sure you're OK. Obviously, that didn't happen. Well, so, I, I so tell you, <laughs> you took him did, up he, on your promise and you well, went to first, the doctor the next day. Yeah, I called a guy. I will say the guy did seem kind of burned out. I will, because when I called him, and he seemed like, you know, I I told him the whole story about the the, the boyfriend and the the coffee shop, and he's like, tell pal, hold on, buddy, do you have a plan? And he go, yes, I have a plan, and I told him my plan. He goes, that's no plan. What? No, that's going to be very painful if you do it that way. Trust me. Like, I go, what? I thought it was a good plan. He goes, do you have a gun? I go, no, I don't have a gun. He says, pal, are you sure you don't have a gun in the house? I said, yes, I'm sure. I'm vegan. We don't usually have guns. And he goes, oh, concerned about your health, are you? 
And like we, so we had this crazy back and forth. Like he's kind of, he's kind of just like making me mad. Like, what? Well, would you just let me end this horrible life? And why? You, it was just, it was bizarre. And I, so he, he didn't. I was surprised he didn't seem like overly concerned. Yeah, right. Does not. Sound but I know very concerned at all. I know. Like you now, said, like, a little like, burnt out. Maybe he's just thinking, oh, another one of these guys. Uh, hey, buck up, one. guy. Toughen up. That's okay, right. click. Yeah. But he's working on yeah, a suicide thanks. hotline. He ought to be not burnt out in a job <laughs> like that. That's a pretty high level job. If you're going to take the job seriously. I know. And maybe the absurdity appealed to me somehow. Like I thought I was going to get like sympathy or compassion or something. Motors like, buddy listen and it was all like i don't know if Our i was calling comedy. new jersey who know where who knows where he was sitting at that time are you sure but you he, didn't mistakenly pull out the number of a comedy club rather than the suicide maybe hotline? Maybe, <laughs> like, maybe i i called the chuckle hut in, in newark i don't know man but it was it was he just kept telling me like oh no that's going to be too messy you don't want to do that what about who's going to clean you up? And he, he got into these weird details like well you know Pal, that is that's going to be very messy. You got to. Do you like your landlord? Do you really want your landlord to have? Well, I don't know. I mean, he's a nice enough guy, I suppose. And well, you know, like you know. So what about this? What? About, well, you know, that's that can be. You can mess that up too. Let me tell you. And it was it was just as bizarre. And by the time, the end of the call, it's you know, it's three or four in the morning. I'm like, uh, well, I can't. I can't even think anymore. You've. I couldn't. I couldn't kill myself if I wanted to. Now I don't even know where I am. <laughs> just, I've just the been in this absurd one-act play. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's. Maybe that was his thing, man. Maybe that was his mode of uh, uh, modus operandi. I don't know. But wow. the next day when I woke up, I. I was. I was mad that I had failed again. You know, mm. I was really ashamed of myself for for not dying. But I made a call to a. A psychiatrist who someone had recommended to me months before and I, I told him what happened and he got me in the next day and um, each day something happened to make me go well that was interesting I never didn't really think about that you know I, I was seeing him once or twice a week and I was seeing my therapist once or twice a week and and I, I just decided to do everything they told me to do because I guess at some point I just decided I wanted to go down swinging. I still didn't have any hope. I didn't see how I would ever be happy. But I thought, well, <clears throat> if you have any dignity left, at least do everything you can. And at this point, I was thinking about my son. I, I had written my son a, you know, a note that night and sealed it up and... I, when I woke up the next day and then for the few days after that, I thought, well, you know, my kid, he would probably want his old man to, to, to go down fighting. And even though I didn't, I didn't expect any of it to work. I actually had a, a long-term suicide plan was that I, I slowly stopped eating over the months. I thought, I'll give this a shot. I'll give all this therapy and stuff a shot. But if it doesn't work out, what I'm going to do while I'm going through this, I'm just going to eat less and less as the months go by because I thought at the end of this, I'll be so weak, it'll be really easy to kill myself. And I really like the idea of slowly disappearing because I felt, I'd felt that way for a long time anyway. 
It's so, really uh, an odd kind of juxtaposition there where, yes, I'm going to do what I can. I'm going to go to therapy. I'm going to go to the psychiatrist. I'm going to go down fighting. But in the meantime, I'm going to slowly starve myself in case none of that BS works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was hedging my bets, man. <laughs> and it, it does was not sound like you're all in. Really? <laughs> I'm not, oh, I was not all in. This was my last. I was. I just wanted to go down. You know that uh, there's some final scene in the movie. A river runs through it when uh, the character that Brad Pitt plays. He he gets beaten up in a bar fight and killed. And the only thing his father wants to know is uh, what his hands looked like. And his brother said all his knuckles were broken. And his dad was like, "Okay." He went. He took someone down with him. He he went down fighting. Right. And that's what I pictured myself as. I thought, well, I'm going to die at the end of this. That's, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to make it, but I'm going to do. I'm, I want to end up on the floor with, with bloody knuckles, and I want my son or to know. Or ribs that are showing. <laughs> exactly. Or or ribs poking out. Yeah, right. <laughs> both both fine. They look like knuckles. <laughs> and so, um, so I, I did that, and I ended up going through all these crazy. I ended up in in uh, in AA. Uh, and I've never had a drinking problem, never uh, had a substance abuse problem. But at some point, a few months into my therapy, my psychiatrist said, you know, this this depression, it sounds a lot like addiction. And I never, that had never occurred to me. I thought, it, that's weird because I don't have any physical addictions. You know, I didn't really make the connection. But I, I thought, whatever, I, I'm supposed to do, you know, I promised myself I'd do whatever it took and, Instead of reading a book about it, I just went, I'll just walk into the Alano Club because I'd, I'd walked by it a lot. It's pretty, a pretty prominent building here in Olympia, and I knew what it was. Um, and all I was doing in my life was walking just miles and miles every day after work. So it's all, it's all I could do to like calm myself down. And so one day I was walking and I just walked in, and it absolutely changed my life. I had never experienced people being so kind and patient with each other. I mean, people could have had 20 years sobriety and come in the next week and say they now had five days sobriety and nobody made them feel bad for that. Right. They just said, we're glad you came back, man. We'll start over with you. We're here. And the, the level of vulnerability and honesty and compassion in those rooms were something I had never seen, man. Not from my family, not from girlfriends, not from not from anyone that I was intimate with. You know, people have always been kind to me, but I never felt that level of forgiveness did you, and uh, compassion. Did you share with people that you had never had a drink? And <laughs> well, I, I don't know if I've ever heard of that. In my uh, mind, yeah, I, I've never gone to an AA meeting, but in my mind, I always think of people standing up saying, you know, my name is Al, I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. And did you have to uh, do that? <laughs> well, I wasn't sure what what I should do. It was an open <laughs> meeting, and in open meetings you can, um, anyone can go. You're not supposed to share unless you're talking about alcohol, but anyone okay. can go. And so, but there are also a lot of addicts that go to this one particular meeting. It's just kind of a, a free-for-all as far, as far as your addictions go. Right. So I don't totally feel comfortable sharing, but the few times I have, I, I've just said I'm Paul and I'm an addict because, you know, I can, I 
definitely feel like I could say I'm I, I, I'm addicted to self pity. Uh, I'm addicted to um, uh, probably a, f- a few things. If you really boil it down, if you want to get technical and, and split hairs, when it comes to depression, there's a lot of things you, at least I do, at least I feel addicted to. Right. Um, just depressive thinking. It's very comfortable. Yeah. It's very comfortable to sit here and um, and self pity and wallow and and those comfortable feelings of 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 sadness and despair and grayness it's 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 an old friend you know it's like oh this is very i remember how this feels and when i start feeling that way i you know i go to a meeting i um i I don't if there was a depression anonymous meeting in town i would go but i haven't found anyone within an an hour of my house so i've never been to one um and they seem to be okay like no one really uh, you know, I, t- I try to keep on topic when I, the few times I do share to, and it's one of the reasons I don't drink. Like, I mean, I have drank my weight in alcohol earlier in my life. Like uh-huh. I drank a lot, but I could always stop. It was no big deal, but, uh, out of respect for the program. Um, and because they say the only, um, the only requirement to be a member of AA is a desire to stop drinking. And so I haven't had a drink since December 21st, 2013, because I feel like, um, A, I need to do that as some sort of um, kind of respect for the program. Uh Uh, And also, like, I really cannot afford to have any kind of depressant in my system. So in some way, I think, well, it is dangerous for me to drink because that's, you know, what's the point of drinking if you're chasing it with Zoloft? You know, right. this is, what's the, so it is dangerous for me to drink. I just, I just don't have a problem with stopping. So that's kind of that fuzzy logic I use to <laughs> <Right>. make <laughs> it okay to go to these meetings and kind of save my life. So, well, that is really cool. I don't know if I've ever met anybody who's gone to AA, um, being addicted to depression. As your, ther- I don't know. As your psychiatrist said, but it yeah. seems to have done wonders for you, huh? Yeah, it really has. I never, I just never met people who were that forgiving and that, um, like they don't preach to you. Never. I've never seen anyone get preached to in a meeting because they're all there. They're all there because they've wrecked their lives in some way. They can't, they can't be self-righteous Yeah. because their lives have brought them to this stinky room at seven in the morning on a bunch of uncomfortable folding chairs. Like you cannot... You cannot be self-righteous in that moment. Right. And that's what I really needed. I needed other people to say, we struggle as much as you do. Just keep showing up, man. Yeah. Do you attend those on a regular basis? <clears throat> I would go a couple times a week for about a, the first year. Okay. And now it's once or twice a month. Um, the meeting I really love is at 7 a.m., so it's <laughs> a little hard to get up for sometimes. And uncomfortable but... chairs, I hear. Uncomfortable chairs, a lot of, <laughs> lot of bad coffee, but it's, uh, it's very comfortable. Like yeah. you, you get that feeling like, oh, I'm with all these people who. That's cool. I, I go, I still dark attend, place too. Yeah. I still attend, um, a men's support group for depression and anxiety and, you know, it's a similar thing. Nobody's going to, nobody's mm-hmm. judgmental. Everybody's been through it. People are there to support one another and it's an incredible environment. Um, and the guy who runs them actually, loves the concept of mm-hmm. AA and, you know, kind of the grassroots piece of it all. And 
the members yeah. running it and so forth. So, man, I would love to find a group like that. Like, whenever I hear Paul Gilmartin talk about his um, support groups on the the his podcast, yeah. I'm just I go, man, why isn't there something in Olympia like that? It's just I haven't I haven't found anything outside of Seattle, which is which is a, a long way to go. F- um, uh, for me and you have searched for them i know nami national alliance on mental mm-hmm. illness has a lot of affiliates in a lot of different cities and they often run different support groups so um that is yeah, one and that i would nami has search. nami has a chapter in olympia but i've never seen them uh have any like support meetings they're kind okay. of more you just advocacy here started. oh man it's all volunteers no no <laughs> too much to just want to go i just want to go and be happy and then leave (laughs) so so it's interesting to me so the whole first of all um calling a suicide hotline still blows my mind when the guy just kind of makes some dark jokes and and i'm so glad it worked for you in the end and then you went right away to a therapist and you started therapy you started seeing a psychiatrist it sounds like and a therapist so talk therapy and medication but yeah. you, you didn't do any kind of inpatient or anything like that because also the the people I have met who have actually attempted suicide typically it's like they end up in the ER and mm-hmm. then they end up in um, staying in the hospital inpatient for three to five days typically um, for suicide watch essentially to make sure they're safe not even really to start any of the therapeutic pieces but really to watch and make sure they're safe. And uh, so it surprises me that that you were able to to get through this. And I think it's awesome that it worked for you. Clearly, it's worked well. Um, Well, you know, I I probably should have gone. Like, my doctor wanted me to go when I I saw the psychiatrist, and he said, um, you know, he, he gave me a prescription, but I also went to my doctor. And, um... I couldn't get in to see my regular doctor, so I saw the uh, uh, woman who was working that day, and she really, really tried to get me to check myself into the the local hospital here. Uh-huh. And I wanted to, like, I really, because I was, I was not confident that I wouldn't hurt myself again. But it was the money, like I had heard all these horror stories about how much money it costs, and I, even though I had insurance, I didn't know what it would cover, and and I thought. If I go into this place for a week or two weeks and I come out $50,000 in debt, I will have no reason to live. Like that will be the final nail, pardon the pun, in the coffin. Like I cannot start my recovery thousands of dollars in debt. Right. I mean, it's just, that was so terrifying to me. Like I knew immediately, like, no, I cannot keep that in my head and try to recover my mental health. Um, I would just be so worried about ever paying this off and and at being a constant reminder of this thing that happened that I just said, no, nah, nah, I'm not going to, I can't. And I, well, and, and I think when you're in a really depressed state like that, mm-hmm. it, it's, it really is tough to make any kind of decisions either. And it's easy to worry and look at the bad side of everything. <clears throat> right. So exactly. I yeah. Mean, it, it, and that's why, like, I would have thought, suicide hotline, 
you're in the process of trying to take your life. This guy's trying to keep <laughs> jokes and keep you on the phone while he sends a cop to you. Cop brings you to the ER, and then you're on three to five day of suicide watch, and then they, they check you out, and you go to your therapist. Um, yeah. Is typically what I've heard and how I think it works, at least in, in our big urban city. That's maybe maybe what should have happened, but he, I think, I think I got so caught up in the absurdity of the conversation, yeah. like when I was on the phone with him, he wasn't trying to be funny, right? But he was asking me such weird questions that yeah. I thought, are we? What are we talking about here? Part of it, like, maybe you were a bit delusional at the time too. Uh, well, yes, it was. It was late, and I was in a, a fugue state, and yeah. you know, who knows? I would. I couldn't even imagine listening to that recording if there did, was one. Did you talk but, to your therapist about insurance and and cost? Did you investigate that at all? Because I could yeah. see that being a barrier, and at the same time, I could see thinking. I don't care what this is going to cost me. I'm scared mm -hmm. to leave this hospital because I'm scared of what I'll do to myself. Yeah, yeah, I did. Um, I, I knew that I could afford to go to therapy with my insurance because I knew I knew what the copay was. I thought, oh, I, I can handle that. You know, it, worst case scenario, I put it on some credit card I find that isn't maxed out, and maybe I can, I can, I can handle that. But the um, all the numbers I'd heard, and I could have been wrong at the time, but all I'd heard, all I could think of was, I'll be twenty, thirty thousand dollars in debt, like yeah. just within a week, just boom. Right. And I thought, no, I, I will never recover any kind of life if I spend the next twenty years paying that off. Yeah. Because I, I have a great job, but I don't have a great paying job. You know, I, right, I, get, right. I, get a, I can I can go to therapy, but I can't go to, you know, Bali. Yeah. So so um, I, I guess I was lucky, too, in the way that my insurance worked, because I did check myself into a three week partial hospitalization program. That was a ton of money. But um, uh -huh. the way my health insurance works is we have a certain out of pocket max. And because I went in in January, we hit our yearly <laughs> max course. right away. But then it was kind of <laughs> like, all right, well, the rest of the year, I mean, we have our you know, the payment or right. the payments I make out of my paycheck to the health insurance plan, but we're not paying for any more, you know, we can go all we want. <laughs> right. Oh my God. See, I wouldn't even think, maybe that's how my plan works too. I was just like, uh, <laughs> I could, I had no, like the, the, the ability to read <laughs> yeah, an right. insurance plan, but well, like, and I don't oh, think I would have loved get to do that. three weeks. You know, so, yeah. Yeah. So for me, um, yeah, like we have like a $6,000, um, you know, max cap on our um, mm -hmm. out of pocket. So that's that's essentially what we paid, and I did oh, it three man. weeks. But um, and then you know, I think there are ways. I I would imagine there are different programs and such to to get support without for people who are uninsured. But mm -hmm. I don't know many details on that. Um, but I do Gosh. think that when you are in, and this is one of my big points, when you're in a depressed state it is difficult to make those decisions, right? And you don't have yeah. the wherewithal at that point to say, you know what, can you help me check out my insurance plan or what options do I right. have here? And to ask about that. And I remember very vividly having my wife at my check-in, my intake mm -hmm. meeting at the partial hospitalization program, and I was so glad she was there 
because my memory was messed up. My focus was messed up. Right. My, my cognition was messed up. Exactly. Really. And for me to try to answer all these questions, I would, I'd look at her and she would be like, <laughs> well, no, 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 that is not right. You started that medication on this date and then you were on this one. And I was like, okay, whatever. Yeah, whatever you say. That, that is so, you, it's so important to have an advocate. And if you don't have a wife or a husband or a girlfriend, you know, yeah. somebody like, you're not going to let your, I would never have made my son do that for me. Right. I would have gone right. to the grave before I made, which is dumb. Like he, he would be very angry if he heard me saying that. Yeah. But, you know, as a parent, you're like, you can't, you just, you can't turn to your kid and go, could you parent me now in this most in, important moment of my life where I, may or may not be like it's just it's overwhelming for them yeah. you feel horrible as a parent right that you gotta do and it's not even something like oh my leg just got blown off uh could you call the ambulance this is there's something wrong inside my head that you you can't see so and you can't even tell so why is that different like and i get it but but mm -hmm. help us understand like had your leg been blown off you would have been okay contacting your son to say dude i need some oh, help yeah. here right yeah, but not because, for a mental illness. So, what we explain the difference there? <clears throat> well, you know, we we kind of all know what happens when that happens. Like, if you have a physical injury, the first thing you do is you call the ambulance. The second thing you do is you get a bunch of towels and you wrap up the stump, and you you tell your dad he's going to live. And I mean, we've seen this in movies. You you see ambulances going by all the time. Like, you kind of know in your head what the protocol is. And then dad goes to the hospital with his leg blown off and you visit him and, uh, you know, he gets a crutch and uh, maybe you got to build a ramp at the house. But, you know, you kind of know how that plays out. But when it's mental health, and especially if it's your kid, it's, I mean, it's terrifying to talk to someone who's not in their right mind. Yeah. At first you don't know, are they joking? Then it's, well, how dangerous is this? Are they just kind of delusional or are they dangerous delusional? And then it's, well, are they going to agree to go to the hospital? I mean, if your leg's blown off, you're like, get me to the hospital. <laughs> right, right. And if someone's like, I don't even know. Uh, like if, if your leg is blown off, you're not going to argue about going to the hospital, right? Mm -hmm. Like, but if you're having uh, some sort of manic episode or depression, you're like, it could be, you could very easily say, no, nah, I'm fine. Yeah. I don't want to spend the money. Right. You know, then you're into this argument over, it's no, just a I bad know. Day. I'll get through it. I'm fine. Right. And and who is your kid to say, dad, trust me, I know as a child. Yeah. <laughs> right. You need, this is, we have crossed the line into dangerous territory. Yeah. And it's just. It is true, like, though, that your your kid is fairly adultish aged now right <laughs> yes now now he is and i would feel i would f i would feel better yeah at that time yeah. he was 20 22 right and, right no um, i understand i i just i do think yeah. that's an interesting piece um because people are so much more open to conversations around the physical health and nobody's embarrassed to say or or embarrassed or um shameful or whatever it may be that makes it so difficult for us, but mm -hmm. nobody hesitates to typically to be like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm ill with cancer. I'm ill with diabetes or, right. um, but the mental illness a lot of times isn't so easy to share. Yeah. There's not, it's not easy to share and no one knows what to do. Right. Even if they believe you. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's ridiculous to go to the emergency room 
for mental illness. I mean, first of all, waiting in the emergency room for 12 hours will give you mental illness. Like if you're if you're unbalanced when you go in, you're you're going to be twice as unbalanced by the time you see anyone. You just it'll drive anyone berserk. It was well, sitting I there for 12 hours. I did interview one of the guys I interviewed earlier um, and published that episode. Eric 13 talked about going to the ER and sitting in there and waiting and waiting and how his anxiety was building up and thinking like <laughs> yeah, everybody around exactly. me is really sick. You can see them. And <laughs> what am I doing here? Right. And your anxiety just getting higher right. and higher. And that and, made it really and, challenging. Yeah. Him. You're in as much pain as the guy with the knife wound, but nobody knows. Exactly. And then you have to convince somebody, no, I'm really, it'll, it'll take you from suicidal to homicidal in about four hours. <laughs> and then, you know, and then you're someone everyone hates. Right, so right. instead of the hospital, maybe you end up in jail, you know? So yeah. like nobody even knows what to do if you're having an episode uh, where, you know, somebody thinks you're a danger to yourself or like wh- there's no there's no mental health ambulance. There's no mental health ER where you could sit in a nice calm place with someone nice to talk to while you wait for a doctor. And I mean, I've had friends who waited 24 hours in an ER with uh, someone who was suicidal and still never got in because there were no rooms. There were right. no beds in, right. in the, the psychiatric section. Yeah. And that's definitely you, a huge issue. Yeah. And so, you know, and the re, you know what, probably the other reason that I never went into a hospital because I have always done everything on my own i've never been uh you know i i don't i don't have a big family grew up with i have a family that my father later married into but they're not the family i grew up with so i've always just done everything on my own i've never had a wife to take me to the hospital if anything bad happened um you know, my, about six months ago, I had to get a colonoscopy, and my boss offered to take me to the hospital. <laughs> that's that's how much family I have in Olympia. Right, right. So it didn't even occur to me that I would have someone take care of me. Yeah. It seemed like, in addition to the money, like, well, no, I nobody takes care of me. Nobody's ever nobody's ever taken care of me. So why would that even happen? That's right. That's for other people who, who are know what know what that feels like for someone to just care for you for a week. Um, that so was such a, an alien concept. Is a little bit of it the the male thing of I can tough through, I can tough this out, I can do this on my own. Yeah, a little bit, absolutely, man. I yeah. mean, it's <sighs> sign of weakness I mean, if you need help. Yeah, yeah, and it's, you know, when you get guys alone, sometimes they'll talk, they'll, if you know them well enough, you know, your best friend, maybe he'll, they'll open up and, and talk about how scared they are sometimes about stuff or how uh, unsure they are of anything, but, you know, those moments are so rare. I mean, that's one of the things I try to talk about on stage a lot, either in my personal stories or when I'm talking about mental health in general, because I know that I, I do have the courage now mm-hmm. to say, this scares the hell out of me. Right. And I can, I can tell a story about some dumb stuff I did because I was scared 
and I didn't get and I didn't ask for help. Like I am willing to talk about that. I have the skills to do it. I can write it. I can perform it, you know, at a whether it's a speech or a story. And so I I want to show guys like you can still be a dude. You know, you can still be a good guy, a strong guy and say, you know what? I was out of my mind, man. I didn't know what to do and I thought it was all over mm-hmm. and I gave up. And I had never seen a man talk about that before. This all happened to me. Right. Not um, the only mental health or suicide stories you see, like in the in the media, are either movies where someone's really out of control, crazy, like Cuckoo's Nest, right. or um, you know some other you know some other movie where you're talking about extremes, or um, you're talking about a, a mass shooting. Right. It's the only it's the only time you hear mental health coming up in the news. So if you don't if you don't identify with those two things, mm-hmm. it's hard you don't even have an example. You can't even say, I'm gonna be like that guy. Like before I did stand up, I watched a lot of stand up, so I knew how it looked. I knew what you were supposed to look like and what you were supposed to do on stage and I thought, Okay, well that's how that works. I'll, I'll do I'll try that. Well, when it comes to mental health, you you never see, you know, a thoughtful guy who just happens to be in a lot of pain, right? Making the right choices. You see people go into rehab, like for substance abuse. That's kind of that doesn't have the um, the stigma that it used to. But for mental health, like you just don't. There would be a lot less stigma if people just saw. But men particularly going to therapy. Right. There was a movie that wasn't a comedy. It wasn't a silly rom-com comedy. Uh, that's a double positive, right? Rom-com <laughs> comedy. Uh, uh, just, you know, an honest de- depiction of a guy struggling with stuff. Right. And what it's like for a guy to do that. If I had had a mental picture of... Uh, uh, someone in a movie or a book or a television show. I mean, well, the only psychiatrist I saw on TV growing up was Bob Newhart. Yeah. Like, right, right. <laughs> that's not helpful, man. That is yeah. not helpful. It's another reason I think the support groups are so great, particularly where I go, where it's men with depression mm-hmm. and anxiety, because it's a bunch of men who do talk feelings and talk about what they've been through. And, and I really do think um, it may sound a bit cliche, like, or whatnot, but um, the the real strong thing to do, the challenging thing to do, is to ask for the help and to let someone yeah. knows you know you need help. That's the brave way to do it. It's not masking it and thinking you can buck yeah. up and be tough. Um, it is actually it's, taking yeah. that step to reach out to say, you know what, I need some help here. It is so hard to get that across, even to women. Like there's still a lot of women out there who don't want a man who will do that. They may say that after the fact. They may say, oh, I wish he'd asked for help. But there are a lot of women, especially uh, online, where everyone's trying to be tough and sarcastic and, and all that stuff, where you, you read these things and uh, you go, well, that's not the kind of man s- some women want. And and that's a big part of it. Like, for a guy, a lot of our identity is wrapped up in our ability to get women to like us. Right. And if we think, even if it's incorrect, that women won't like us if 
we say if we admit to having depression or bipolar or you know then you know ed, that admission equals i will never be loved and that is a whole new i mean that that brings you right back to why stay alive right if i'm going to be the type of man that women don't appreciate and luckily as as i get older and i meet women who are older they're not like that at all mm-hmm. but for you know young men in their 20s you know, they're meeting women in their 20s and those women are not mature enough to say you know they you know they might say oh i want a man who's honest but they don't want a man who's honest and says yeah i'm really a broken man i i cry <laughs> every night on my way home from work and i don't know what's wrong with me you know if you stay on facebook or twitter you're going to see a lot of women who say they absolutely do not do not want that kind of guy <laughs> I don't and know. A, I don't know if Facebook and Twitter is the best uh, gauge, <laughs> right? You're now. right. It's like the worst. It's the I mean, worst humanity like has Facebook to offer. Facebook and all those things. All you see is like the glorified version of everybody, right? Like exactly. Everything thing, is so wonderful and perfect in my life. Look at my Facebook uh-huh. page. Um, and that's all we say. Like it, lit- yeah. it actually is. It like makes it more challenging more, to be ourselves. Right. You got to get off this thing that you think is connecting you with people. But really, it's only connecting you with messages that say, buck up, suck it up. Right, I mean, right. I follow a lot of fitness sites, you know, because yeah. I, now I exercise and I eat healthy. It's super helpful for my recovery. But, you know, there's not, I've never seen a poster in the gym yeah. <laughs> that said, it's okay to cry. Right, it's all right. no pain, no gain. <laughs> you know, if you're not making progress every single day, you are losing. Right. right. Yeah. And here you are. I'm like, I'm here for my mental health, but I hate these posters, man. Right, and I'm right. unfollowing you on Facebook. It's not helpful. <laughs> right. And and the women are the same way. Like they buy into the culture the same way. Like there there are a lot of so many strong, tough women out there who are like never give up, never show weakness, never like. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's there's a woman who's not attracted to me. All right. So, okay. Uh, so what what are you doing for your mental health these days? I know you did mention the gym. So you're working out. Are you still seeing a therapist? Still taking meds? Anything else? Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm still seeing um, uh, my psychiatrist. Uh, retired. I, I might have been his last client, but I think he felt comfortable that I was going to stay alive. So he retired. But I, I still see my therapist uh, probably once or twice a month, who I've been seeing for many years, 16, 17 years now. Um, I, uh, I eat healthy. I cook. You know, I cook all the lunches that I bring to work on Sunday, so I know that I'm not going to be tempted to eat the to go out to eat and eat right. bad food. Yes. And uh, I go to the gym three or four days a week. And also, the two the two big things for me are uh, not isolating myself, yeah. which I always knew. Like, I always knew loneliness equals death for me. But it wasn't until it really did almost kill me that I realized, like, man, I got to take this seriously. Like, I have to call... Mark or Rick or 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 Jessica or somebody and just say, hey, can we go for a walk? Can you can we go out and uh, get a cup of coffee or something? I just want to hang out with someone. Right. Like uh, now I know, like I don't even need to tell them why. I just need to do it. Yeah. Sometimes I have to just talk to the cashier at Fred Meyer, which even though I go on stage and I talk about really embarrassing and appropriate stories, like it's still really hard for me to talk to strangers. And when somebody does talk to me in line at, at Fred Meyer, like I will 
talk their ear off if I've had a bad day. Because right. I know this is medicine. Talking yeah. to the the lady behind me who's you know uh, making eyes at my broccoli, like let's talk for two or three minutes. I'll feel connected to the world and to humans. Uh, I and think I'll feel that, root. that connectedness is huge. And that's something yeah. I think that's a pretty common depression symptom is making excuses to not see people and to start isolating, which only makes it yeah. worse. Oh, it just, it makes it a hundred times worse. And, and the truth is, you know, most of your friends actually do like you. <laughs> they right, really, right. they really do want to see you. If you're the first one to say, Hey, let's go, to, let's go get a cup of coffee or, uh, you know, now I'll I'll ask people if they need help. Like if I know uh, my buddy Mark is remodeling his house, I will offer to help him paint or help him just move something. Oh, that's awesome. And and I know, and now he knows too that you know this is actually I actually need this. So just give me something to do. <laughs> this is and, medicine uh, for Paul. He's not exactly. really trying to be nice. He just needs yeah, to hang I, out a bit. So give him I a couldn't care less about you. <laughs> Give me, that's right. And, and the other thing is the storytelling. Like I have so many yeah. people coming to the shows now that, that's awesome. that I feel like, you know, I don't want to let them down. I don't want to cancel a show. I don't want to stop doing this. So many people are still discovering it and watching people get up there for the first time and tell a story that they have never told anyone. Yeah. Yeah. It's so beautiful and so moving to me. I think there's something probably about like, having a purpose, right? Like you have yeah. this real purpose. You've got this show, you've got people who count on you running this show and you're getting a crowd out there and it's really rewarding. It's got to feel great for you. Oh man, that is, it's the best thing I've ever been associated with. It's, yeah. it's definitely the best thing I've ever done with my life. Right. And I, it's still hard for me to explain to people why it's so important for me to do it for free. Yeah. I don't want anyone thinking I'm doing this for money or for recognition. In fact, I never advertise a show. I only want people to hear about it uh, word of mouth. Right, right. Because those are the ones. I don't want people coming because it's just a free night of entertainment. I want people coming who for the are invested time. in either telling a story or supporting someone who's yeah. telling a story. Right. Because when you have a room full of those people, it is a magical evening. Yeah. And that's, that's what I need. You know, that's what I need to keep going. Yeah. Oh, that's phenomenal. So, Hey, before we wrap up, I would love to hear if you have any kind of final tips, suggestions, advice, words of hope for anybody who's out there who might be struggling right now. <sighs> wow. That is, um, I wish I had some pat thing to uh it's just got to, to tell come from people your heart, man. I guess I guess my experience is it's not it's not as dark as you think it is. It may be really really dark and you may have lots of evidence that your life stinks. But it really it can get better. And the greatest thing that I've experienced in my recovery is being able to talk to someone who's in their own pit and say, I've been there too. And I know how you feel. 
and I I will stand here until you lift your head and 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 give me your hand. Like I, I can't take care of everyone, but I can still be there. I can still keep showing up. And when you recover, you will be that person. And I, I didn't understand that for a long time. Like, why, why, why would anyone care what I went through? But when you're able to give back to someone who's in the exact same position you were, you, ha- you have this overwhelming just wave of gratitude come over you that you can help one other person with your experience, even if it's just talking to them for 10 minutes and you never see them again. If I, if I hadn't been through what I've been through, I wouldn't have started this show and I wouldn't have touched so many lives, even if it's just for one night, for two hours on one night, that that changed someone. And I never in a million years could have expected that this beautiful thing would have come from something so terrible. So I guess I would say, if you just stick around and you work the program, whatever your program is, you will find something beautiful in what you're going through right now and you you will be able to give that to other people when you're ready. Yeah, that is so well said. And I think that not only hits on the hope for somebody who's struggling right now, but also for those who are trying to help them, right? Just being yeah. there for them is, oh. is huge, right? Just be there yeah. for them. Don't judge you don't need them. Yeah. You know, you don't need answers. Exactly. You don't need advice. Yeah. Just hang out with them. Yeah. Just say, yeah. I mean, (laughs) I I was in such a dark place. I would never want my worst enemy there. And a lot of good did come out of it. So when you come out on the other end, there's a lot to look forward to. Yeah. I'm sure you never dreamed that you would be doing a podcast. Exactly. Especially on this. And this is beautiful, man. The, the, The hell you live through was the fuel yeah. for this wonderful thing you're doing now. Yeah, yeah. You're right on. Well, Paul, I want to thank you so much. I I'm going to I feel like I want to hop on a plane and get to Washington just to see the <laughs> just to be at that show and maybe one day I'll make it there. Um, if any one of your listeners comes out the fourth Thursday of the month, go to Seattle, come to Fresh Ground Stories. I would love to meet someone. Yeah, uh, from your podcast and I'm, I'll make sure to put the uh, web link in the show notes I want to thank you okay. for your time thank you for the amazing work you do around the storytelling and uh, I'm so glad uh, that you've pulled through and are sound like you're doing so well make sure you stay healthy and uh, keep in touch I will man you too and thank you so much for, uh, for asking me on your show I appreciate it thank you for listening to the depression files Please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text to 741741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you're a man who has experienced depression and would like to be interviewed for the show, please reach out to me on Twitter at Al Levin 18. 
Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.